This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like balloons, razors and privilege. Or brutes, roots and shoots, moots, cheroots and flutes. <laughs> Deary me, that's terrible, terrible. I think, however, next time we should do the subject of contempt, which one of our listeners in Australia suggested to us. And we liked the idea so much that it's up next. And then we're going to do reading, I think. We should also do doppelgangers. I've had an extraordinary <laughs> week, Sam. I have. I've had an extraordinary week because on two consecutive days, individuals came up to me and said, hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? And I said, do I know you? And then they said, oh, yes, you're um, you're Dominic, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm James. So apparently wandering around the West Country is somebody that looks exactly like me and people are mistaking me for them. Uh, it's very weird. However, this is to digress as ever, because what we're supposed to be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the very interesting history of smugness is in fact all about toxic insults, contemporary politics and the Oxford AstraZeneca Covid jab, the myth of the overconfident Icarus, he of the melting wings, depicted by Peter Bruegel the Elder as a pair of legs poking out of the sea, as well as schadenfreude, the meaning of having someone's smugness punctured. It's also all about Napoleon, of course it is. It's about Nelson, Siegfried Sassoon's suicide in the trenches and the horrors of trench warfare during World War One, and the history of scrumping. Or mm. that the history of grandparents is in fact all about World War Two memory, oral history, China, Elizabeth Freak and the tragic death of grandchildren. Mm. It's all fascinating stuff, James. I want to do razors, razors, after, all of that stuff. Do you yeah, know? Absolutely. I popped, I popped it in there because I wanted to do razors, and I thought, ah, mm. Sam will want to do razors if I bring it up. 
Yes. I wouldn't do all of them. But anyway, comfort and re uh, sorry, comfort. Um we should do comfort actually. That was a that's a slip, comfort. but we should comfort um contempt. Uh, contempt. That's a, contempt. I hold you in contempt, Sam Willis. And oh it's so interesting, contempt, isn't it? You can do um oh it is all to do with imperialism, racism, or discrimination. Oh, there's so much there. Having holding someone in contempt is not having having contempt for them. Oh, I know. Uh, wonderful. We shall explore all that next time. Anyway, let me introduce my fellow presenter. If history were a drowning sailor, this man would charge down to the sea with his recently patented surf life-saving torpedo boy. He would fire it from the cliffs of the present to the misty maelstrom of the past, dragging that poor personification of history to the comfort of his bosom. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, everyone, and hello, you. You who, well, you may be wondering, who is this unattributed voice so ably helping me co-pilot these episodes well let's just say that if he were a danger related historian he'd only be like not actually but like harry houdini of the historical world so death defying and dangerous are his historical feats so brave and fearless is he in the face of the dragon's den of peer review so mind-bendingly flexible are his historical powers that he can escape any challenge and danger that archives put in his way yes you've guessed it it's the famous historical adventurer himself your friend and mine dr sam willis hello sam Hi, everyone. Uh, today, we're doing danger. So where are you going with danger, Sam? What, what, may, what, what did you think of? What did I think of? I, we've, we've spoken about accidents a lot before, and I immediately thought back to our previous work on accidents. We wrote about accidents in our book on the Tudors, where um, this is one of your favourite topics, isn't it? You it found certainly them. is, yes. What was the source of the archive? There's some kind of archive of, of horrific Tudor accidents. Oh, brilliant. It's Steve Gunn and colleagues at Oxford, uh, yeah. the accidental death. Um, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant project. Um, and um, we've also been talking about uh, in our history of poison. Um, we, I, I spoke about danger in the workplace, I suppose, more broadly. So I was thinking about industrial accidents. I was thinking about, um, you know, particularly in terms of things like shipbuilding. But I ended up um, researching all sorts of other stuff. But um, those were my initial thoughts. And I realised that there is a huge and fascinating history of danger Um uh, or your kids working in mines was something else I thought about. And also anyone pioneering any kind of technology at all, whether it's digging oil wells. I've always been fascinated by that. Extraordinarily dangerous and people just digging down until the earth basically explodes. And then, you know, you've struck oil. Um, you've got people um, exploring uh, uh, underwater. I've throughout my career written a great deal about uh, submarines and submariners and, and particularly failed submarine attempts uh, which is I think quite interesting with the recent history of the Nangala that Indonesian submarine which disappeared in in the Pacific and, and uh, never came back uh, but submarine design uh, is fascinating uh, and you could also apply that to uh, to flight um, and to space exploration all sorts of different things what about you James well I too was thinking about our work on 
accidents. And that project, the correct title of it, is Everyday Life and Fatal Hazard in 16th Century England, which there are about 9,000 accidental deaths that they investigate in the National Archives, looking at coroner's records. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and in particular about the danger of households. But I was also thinking that you could think about this in terms of health and safety. So you could think about it in terms of a timeline of all the kinds of legislation that were put forward from the Industrial Revolution onwards when Parliament gets involved and there are various committees that look into the very dangerous working practices. So you could follow it in that direction. Or you could look at the history of stuntmen. So I'm going to do a little bit on the history of stuntmen and in particular, Harold Lloyd. I was also thinking of what sort of dangerous activities do people get up to? And I thought one of the most dangerous things is lion taming. So the training, <laughs> training of lions, you know, for you see them in the circus, various sort of displays. And one of the most famous early pioneers of this was an American animal trainer called, wonderful name here, Isaac A. Van Amber. Uh, who lived between 1808 and 1865. And he is one of the sort of originators of animal training and menageries and circuses and clown performances. And he earned the name The Lion King. Many of you may have seen that Netflix series called The, the Lion King recently. And um, was it The Lion King? Was it The uh... Tiger King? The Tiger, the Tiger King, King, the, King, the, Tiger the Tiger King. King, the Tiger mm. King. This man is the, and the title, the Lion King, partly because he was very ferocious before these animals. Uh, but there, there are there are extracts describing what he got up to in the words of his biographer. At the age of 22 in 1833, his biographer writes: "The effect of his power was instantaneous. The lion halted." and stood transfixed. The tiger crouched. The panther, with a suppressed growl of rage, sprang back, while the leopard receded gradually from its master. The spectators were overwhelmed with wonder. Then came the most effective tableau of all. Van Amber, with his strong will, bade them come to him, while he reclined in the back of the cage, the proud king of animal creation. And Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote in on the 4th of September, 1828, of going along to a, to, to a menagerie where Amber was at, Van Amber was at. So it was, this is probably describing him. And he described how a man put his arm and head into the lion's mouth, all the spectators looking on so attentively that a breath could not be heard. That was impressive. Its effect on a thousand persons more like than the thing itself and he's recorded of having the sort of fearless act of placing his bare arm moist with blood in the lion's mouth and thrusting his head into the distended jaws of a tiger <gasps> now that for me sam willis is dangerous <laughs> properly dangerous yes um yes wonderful uh, I, I wouldn't do that have you ever done that on your travels not done that. That, that would be quite a good um, TV series, I think. It would. It Sam would. Willis, historical dangers. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have I to like, do. I like the idea of travels, though. And I came across a fabulous book written by Dr. Sarah Goldsmith. Oh. And she's a lecturer in urban and material culture history at the University of Edinburgh. Oh. 
and uh, she's written a wonderful book called Masculinity in Danger on the 18th Century Grand Tour. Mm. And it's really, really interesting. So for the, gra- the Grand Tour, for those of you who don't know, so you've got to think kind of 17th century, 18th century. Uh, it's a custom of a, a trip taken throughout Europe by wealthy upper class young people who've got the means to do it, basically. And it was a kind of a coming of age thing. They tended to do it maybe around 21 or so. And it, it flourished from around 1660 all the way up to the 1840s. A really huge, c- culturally significant thing for for many, many people. The, the idea is you'd, you'd, you'd go um, down to Dover, uh, the quickest way of crossing the Channel. If you're in the UK, you go across to Calais or Le Havre or maybe Ostend. From there, you go down to Paris. You'd um, do lots of... Uh, culturally significant things a bit of bit of dancing a bit of exploring lots of feasting lots of eating just exploring the world from paris on to switzerland maybe geneva then to italy it spent lots of time in italy so you go to florence go to the museums there um well my favorite place florence uh, milan uh, pisa padua uh, definitely you go to venice and then definitely you go to rome maybe naples maybe if you could get a boat you could go to sicily and malta and Greece, then back across the Alps to Innsbruck, Vienna, Dresden, Berlin, Berlin, uh, Holland and Flanders, and then back to the UK. So it's quite a, it's a very long time ago they're doing, they're undertaking these travels. And um, Sarah Goldsmith has, has identified that there was an immense amount of danger that went along with the experience. And she argues that uh, dangerous experiences were, were actually very central to the whole business of um, of the Grand Tour, of constructing Britain's next generation of leaders. And that the whole thing actually influenced was, was influenced by aristocratic concepts of honour, cultures of military leadership and all sorts of things. And um, there are all sorts of wonderful examples of what they're getting up to here. But they're basically putting themselves into physical danger as much as possible. They're really dangerous landscapes. They're climbing mountains, volcanoes, glaciers. They're encountering war and disease. You know, bear in mind that Europe throughout the 17th and 18th centuries was a seriously dangerous place to go and to spend time. And if you put that alongside the fact that people are spending a really long time on these grand tours, I mean, sometimes it's several years at a time, by which time... Um, European politics can have dramatically changed. So people regularly finding themselves caught up in um, in terrible, terrible wars and massacres. Uh, deaths from disease were not uncommon. Um, and there's a, whether it's just general ill health or um, or specific things, whether it's you know sort of malaria, quinsy was something that people suffered from as well. It's a complication of tonsillitis. Uh, something I've suffered from for years until I had my tonsils out, but I still get throat infections. Um, and so dying of that, it sounds completely horrific. Um, there are some extraordinary examples in this book. You've got um, avalanches and, and people not helping themselves. There's a chap called Henry Fiennes. I never know how to pronounce this. F-I-E-N-N-E-S. Henry Fiennes Pelham Clinton. Sounds like a, a fairly serious... Uh, seriously high up or aristocrat who who really really hurts himself during a jumping competition <laughs> which I loved what's that do you think James I don't know what a jumping competition is do you reckon they're jumping off something maybe into water or is it like a height competition it's like that thing that people that youngsters do around town jumping off buildings and things I don't know 
What's mm. that called? That that sort of jumping around things. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Free free running. Free running. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, oh, yeah. So it's 18th century tombstoning, which is what all yes. the kids do now, and they hurl themselves off cliffs or or some kind of free running thing. Uh, all done in the 17th and 18th century. Um, and also, that one of the real dangers of travelling as broad is they fall in love and things get really. There's a danger of falling in love. Things getting very expensive. So you have William Wyndham in the 1740s, who uh, ends up incurring enormous legal expenses for the cost of extracting himself from a marriage. Uh, he basically agreed to marriage the a, a daughter of a well, a European noblewoman in her own right. Um, and uh, he yeah, he doesn't want to follow through with it and has to pay immense immense amounts of money to get out of it. So I thought it was um it was very interesting in general just the dangers of the grand tour in the 17th and 18th centuries particularly because it's so often associated with these sort of wonderful um and calm uh watercolors of landscapes taken during the grand tour but actually thinking about it as a a really masculine challenging dangerous environment and dangerous thing to do and when you come back from the grand tour there's a certain feather in your cap for having braved everything that that um europe in the 17th century and 18th century could um throw your way uh, and that made me think about the dangers of traveling uh, more generally and i suddenly thought well where do you have masses of people traveling and uh uh, it made me think of the uh, the Hajj, the the, the annual uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, and it didn't take long just to look online. There are there were terrible stampedes in 1990, 94, 98, 2001, 2004, 2006, 2015, um, which you know sometimes hundreds of people are killed at a time. Uh, the the earliest one there in 1990, 1,426 pilgrims. And as we all are aware now, that having huge groups of people together is um, it's a, a hotbed for disease. And the Hajj has been, a, has been a real problem with cholera. 1821, 20,000 pilgrims die because of a cholera epidemic. Another one in 1863, um, and that claimed the life of between 15,000 to 90 thousand pilgrims so real problems with cholera and in more recent years uh, with swine flu with MERS and um, COVID they've obviously were very very acutely aware of the dangers of COVID and so I put uh, significant warnings out in 2020 to stop people going there so they are the James the dangers of traveling and uh, as, a, as an adjunct to that the dangers of traveling in large groups of people ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Well, I'm going to take your dangers of travelling and I'm going to extend it to everyday life, Sam, because in the early modern period, I think just living was pretty dangerous. And this links to the everyday life and fatal hazard in the 16th century England project uh, that I was talking about earlier on. And each month they have a discovery of the month and for june uh, june 2021 since it's very hot nowadays they have a heat related example now sam willis beware of taking drinks on long journeys in the summer to keep yourself refreshed beware because on the 5th of june 1572 one nicholas jenks and john jackets were taking two pieces of timber to the house of Henry Dawling at Bidford-on-Avon in the cart of their master, William Charlotte of Cleve Prior in Worcestershire. Now, Jackets was driving and Jenks had a bottle clasped between his knees for safekeeping. Very sensible thing to do. You keep your hands free, bottle between your knees. At nine in the morning, they drove over the River Arrow, perhaps at Oversley, and stopped the cart. But as one wheel rested on a bank higher than the other wheel, the cart collapsed. Now, this is where everything goes wrong. As it broke, it fell on Jenks, squashing the bottle into his genitals and wounding him so badly that he died three days later. So, you know, the Tudor world is really dangerous. And as we said in our episode, our podcast episode on accidents, we know so much about this because of the survival of coroner's records. So I won't go into that but again, but just to say that coroner's records are incredibly rich resources of accidental death throughout the period. And what they show us is a really dangerous world of everyday life, with people being mauled by bears, drowning in cesspits, mangled by windmills, trampled by horses, cut by sides, shot by firearms, all sorts of terrible things. But it's not just for adults, it's not just the workplace, even though about half of all fatal deaths in Tudor Britain happened in the workplace. The household is also really dangerous, and it's particularly dangerous for children. And the History of accidents is a really rich resource for studying the lives of children, see the kinds of things that they get up to. And in addition to these coroner's records, you can also piece together the dangers that children faced by looking through parents' diaries. And what I'm going to do now is read to you from a selection of 16th and 17th century parents' diaries describing the various accidents that children befell. And this comes from a fabulous book that you should all own. It's out of print, but I think you can get it in A Books and various places uh, and your local local second-hand bookshop. And it's by my supervisor, uh, the brilliant Ralph Holbrook, and it's called English Family Life 1576 to 1716. Now we're going to start with John Dee's letter, uh, diary. Now, this covers the period 1582 to 96. He's an Elizabethan mathematician and astrologer, and he records day-to-day life of the Dee family, and his children are exceptionally accident-prone. Um, he describes on the 
3rd of July, 1582, at a quarter past twelve, Arthur D. fell from the top of the Watergate stairs down to the foot from the top and cut his forehead on the right eyebrow. Terrible thing to happen. Um, he then goes on on the 1st of January, 1588. On New Year's Day, about nine of the clock afternoon, Michael, going childishly with a sharp stick of eight inches long and a little wax candle light on the top of it, did fall upon the plain boards in Mary's chamber. The sharp point of the stick entered through the lid of his left eye towards the corner next the nose, and so pierced through, insomuch that a great abundance of blood came out under the lid in the very corner of the said eye. The hole on the outside is not bigger than a pin's head. It was anointed with St John's oil. The boy slept well. God speed the rest of the cure. He then describes, on the 5th of August, after dinner, the little boy, son of the captain of Rodnitz, hurt Arthur's nose with a razor, not in anger, but by chance, wantonly. On the 21st of May, 1589, he describes Catherine, by a blow on the ear given by her mother, did bleed at the nose very much, which did stay for an hour and more. Afterwards, she did walk to town with a nurse. Her coming home an hour, she bled again, very sore by gushes, very flesh, fresh, good blood, whereupon I perceived it to be the blood of the artery. So her mother <laughs> had hit her so hard that it had basically split an artery. On the 27th of June, 1591, Arthur wounded on his head by his own wanton throwing of a brickbat upright and not well avoiding the fall of it again. Um, the brick weighed 21 and a half pounds. That's, that's, <laughs> that is pretty, pretty heavy. Now, I want to go on to talk about... Um, i give you another example of this. This comes from Mrs Alice Thornton's... Uh, autobiographical writings from the period 1659 to 1668 and she describes how Kate Kate hurts Alice in a boisterous game 1661 my two children was playing at Oswald Kirk in the parlour window and Kate being very full of sport and play did climb into the window and leaping down fell upon her sister Alice and thrust her upon the corner of the same with a great force and strength she had. And her sister cried out with pain and soreness, which had grievously hurt the inner rind of her belly, so sore till I was afraid she had broken it. But it continued a long time, though I put a sear cloth on it, yet doth it now very often hurt and pain her, so that I have cause to bless and praise the name of God for ever, that she was not wounded so as to break her bowels, it being so dangerous a place and hazard in her bearing of children. Oh, praise the Lord for this his great mercy to my poor child, and make her thy servant. And that's a, a continual theme in these religious writings, these spiritual journals. Not only is it a chronicling of the danger and accidents that befell children, but it is also a way of thanking God for their saving, 
you know, for not letting them come to, but basically not letting them die. Now, one final one for you, Sam, is from the diary of uh, John Evelyn, and he describes how in the 31st of December 1654, uh, the parents saved their son, Richard Evelyn. By God's special providence, we went not to church, my wife being now so very near her time. In other words, she was about to give birth. For my little son Richard, now about two years old, as he was fed with broth in the morning, a square but broad and pointed bone of some part of a rack of mutton, stuck so fast in the child's throat and cross, his wee sand that had certainly choked him, had not my wife and I been at home. For his maid, being alone with him above in the nursery, was fallen down in a swoon when we below, going to prayers, heard an unusual groaning over our head, upon which we went up and saw them both gasping on the floor. Nor had the wench any power to say what the child ailed or call for any help. At last she said she believed a crust of bread had choked her little master, and so it almost had, for the eyes and face were swollen and closed, the mouth full of froth and gore, the face black, no surgeon near. What should we do? We called for drink, pour it down, it returns again. The poor babe, now near expiring, I hold its head down, incite it to vomit, it had no strength. In this despair, and my wife almost as dead as the child, a near despair that so unknown and sad an accident should take from us so pretty a child, it pleased God that on the sudden effort, and as it were struggling his last for life, he cast forth a bone of his shape and form. I gave the child some lucitellius balsam, and for his throat was much excoriating. Oh, my gracious God, out of what a tender fear and sad heart, into what joy did thy goodness now revive us. Blessed be God for this mercy, wherefore begging pardon for my sins and returning thanks for his grace, I implored his providential care for the following year. So Evelyn's son almost choking on a mm. bone. I almost died when I was about that age as well. Uh, I was about two and in the middle of the night, my father came into my bedroom and found that I had swallowed the key from my clockwork train. And it had a little pink string on it. And I basically put it into my mouth for some reason. I've no idea why. But I was choking away. He came in, turned me upside down, literally held me by my ankles, banged me on the back and I threw up the key. So the the nineteen seventies were a dangerous time as well. I think you'll find Sam. <laughs> well, they absolutely were. I've got a quote here from the nineteen seventies. This is this is a very famous actor, Japanese actor Bando Mitsuguru, who died in nineteen seventy five. This, this, this death is described in an American newspaper, and it's also to do with eating things, though not keys from clockwork trains. 
Despite the death of a famous actor, Japanese gourmets are still playing a briny version of Russian roulette in indulging their taste for globe fish or fugu. They run the risk of paralysis and quick death. The danger in sampling this marine delicacy was brought home dramatically Thursday when one of Japan's great actors, Mitsugoro Bando, died after eating a globe fish liver. Bando, whose genius earned him the government designation of living national treasure, was in Kyoto for a performance. On Wednesday night, he dined at a well-known fugu restaurant with four friends. Returning to his hotel at 11pm, he complained of numbness in his legs and arms, telltale symptoms of fugu poisoning. A doctor was called at 3am Thursday and one and a half hours later, Bando was dead. The municipal health centre ordered the restaurant closed for 10 days and an investigation was started. A Kyoto ordinance prohibits the service of fugu liver. Bando's companions, less daring than he, avoided it. Bando was widely known as a gourmet and an essayist. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of food, animals and plants. His death at the age of 68 stunned the theatre world and its devotees, but observers say it is unlikely to slow down the consumption of fugu. And it certainly didn't slow down the consumption of fugu. And actually, eating this fish, a puffer fish, dates back thousands of years. And researchers have actually discovered bones dating 3,000 years ago, showing that they were eating puffer fish at that time. But it became so uh, dangerous that it was actually banned um, across the 16th century. But that didn't obviously stop people from doing it. Uh, That's one of the problems with humanity and law, because making something illegal doesn't stop it from happening. Um, And here we have an account from Engelbert Kempfar, a German doctor who made a decade-long tour of Asia, noted that Japanese people wishing to commit suicide often would do so through eating fugu. And here's a little poet uh, from Yosar Busson, writing in the 18th century, um, wrote this poem as a man in love. I cannot see her tonight. I have to give her up. So I will eat fugu. So there you are, James. A bit of danger of eating things that are not clockwork, uh, keys for clockwork trains, but actual fish. It's very sad, very sad. Your talk about the actor prompts me to talk about my final example, which is about the history of stunt people. The stunt performers, these are people who come in and do all the dangerous acts and stunts instead of instead of their actors. Uh, and this has a really interesting history that you can you can trace from early circus performers and acrobats and tumblers. It has a really interesting stage history through stage combat, and I think that's something you could trace back to the 16th century at the very least. You think about Shakespeare's plays, all the sword fighting that would have been done there. I mean, that would have been performed by the actors themselves. You can think about it in early cinema. Think about all of those black and white Hollywood movies, the brilliant movies like The Keystone Cops, Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd. And then you can trace it through the different genres in in Hollywood and around the world, the cowboy films, the action movies, Hong Kong martial arts films. Uh, and of course, you know, the sort of modern day films that we have, you know, like The Fast and the Furious with the, the car car chases. We're on Fast and Furious 9, I see, uh, in the newspaper today, uh, which has had rave reviews, Vin Diesel and his friends, still uh, fast and furious in their machines. Now, this got me to thinking about how actually dangerous this is. I came across a study by an academic called Michael McCann, 
uh, from the University of Illinois, and it was put together in the 1980s, and it's titled Stunt Injuries and Fatalities Increasing. And what he did was to study the records of acting unions, technical crews for theatres and, and movies and TV shows and even commercials and noticed a massive increase in stunt-related injuries and fatalities. And he estimated that a survey of newspaper articles for 1980 alone showed 17 fatalities, most of which were due to stunts. Um, and he did a there was a study by the Screen Actors Guild of California that found between four years, between 1982 and 1986, on motion picture and TV sets, almost 5,000 members of the SAG were either injured or died from from what they from what they did and he lists an incredible amount of of uh, fatalities did you ever watch uh, the dukes of hazard sam yes. in the 80s it was one of my favorite shows as a kid 1980 rodney mitchell a cameraman was killed in a car chase um, in Magnum PI, with the there was a helicopter accident in 1980, which again killed a cameraman. Um, in the film The Sword and the Sorcerer, a stuntman, Jack Tyre, in 1981, was killed by falling off a cliff. And so I think what it is, it's as films become more realistic, as they try and put more stunts into it, so you get the rise of fatalities and deaths. And he lists all manner of fatalities and deaths in this study. You can still find it. It's been archived. But if you go to the playback machine on the internet, you can find it. Now, one of my favourite uh, black and white silent comics was Harold Lloyd, uh, who was active in the 1920s. And he was famous for being somebody who did all of his own stunts. Now, one of the most famous and long-lasting stunts that he did was in a film called Safety Last. I don't know whether you know much about Harold Lloyd or any of his films, Sam, but you will probably know the image of him sort of tall, thin guy with, you know, a bit sort of Charlie Chaplin looking with, with spectacles hanging off a clock, a tower clock yeah, that had basically yeah, the, face of, the face of it had fallen out. Now, this was one of the sort of most famous uh, stunt scenes and one of the first, it's thought, to use safety contraption so they 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 um they're quite high up at the atlantic hotel uh in los angeles um and they have to put in two safety features the first uh is, it doesn't really seem like it would be uh that safe but um in order to protect the performers they put uh mattresses uh underneath them and they made people wear heavily padded corsets under their clothing so that if you know anything happened and they fell down uh, they would be protected and they the second thing that they do is that they put uh, say they make them wear a safety harness so there's a safety wire that's attached to the building so as they're hanging there off that uh, clock face they would they'd be fine now uh, Harold Lloyd didn't uh, wasn't really keen on doing this it was quite new innovation maybe the way that we think about health and safety regulations today being sort of slightly 
overkill uh, and he didn't really want to want to go ahead with it so what he did was he got a, a dummy uh, mocked up so that he would be so they would make the dummy uh, have an accident and then he would see the impact on the dummy and of course the dummy was in really bad shape afterwards and he decided on the basis of that that he in fact would use these safety devices in future <laughs> so there we are uh, the history of stunt performers very good uh, i'm just going to finish with um just an account of the first aviation fatality uh, which is thomas Ethelin, another very good name, Thomas Ethelin Selfridge. And he was born in February 1882 and he died in September 1908. And he was first person to die uh, in an aeroplane uh, accident. And it was he was flying as a passenger alongside Orville Wright. And we've got a, an account of this um, September 1908 from a local newspaper. And I just thought it was um, worth reading out. After a flight of less than six minutes, Mr Orville Wright's aeroplane collapsed this afternoon. Mr Wright and Lieutenant Thomas E. Selfridge were buried in the wreckage. They are now in the Army Hospital at Fort Myer, seriously injured. But it is not known how badly. It is feared that both are internally hurt. Mr Wright's leg is broken. The accident took place when the machine was making its fourth circle of the field. The great crowd that had gathered saw the blade of the left-hand propeller fly off. Instantly, the machine fluttered uncertainly like a wounded bird. Then it turned completely over and plunged 75 feet to earth. A great cloud of dust rose instantly, shutting off the view of the wreckage. With one accord, the crowd started for the scene far down the parade ground. Colonel Hatfield, in command of the fort, gave quick orders to keep back the curious, and a squadron of cavalry raced ahead. Word was sent immediately to the fort hospital, and an army ambulance and surgeons were hurriedly dispatched. Before they arrived, however, civilian physicians had rendered first aid. Mr Wright, when removed from the wreckage, was conscious. Both were covered with blood, and their clothes were torn and grimed with dust. It was necessary to lift the machine bodily before they could be released, and Mr Wright, quizzical and calm even in this extremity, smiled in a wry fashion into the faces of those who went over to him. He tried to speak, but in the confusion could not make himself heard. He was gently lifted to a place only a few feet removed from his wrecked machine. The real cause of the accident was the breaking of a propeller blade. Only yesterday Mr Wright removed the propellers, and with which he has made so many records since beginning his tests here. He believed he could make better speed with longer propellers. He also desired to experiment because of late he had not been getting all the power out of the engine that he believed it was capable of. The blade snapped off close to the shaft and was thrown far out from the machine, probably for a distance of 50 or 60 feet. The aeroplane immediately plunged first upward and then downward, then describing an almost complete somersault. It crumpled up, fell and lay beneath a great cloud of choking dust. It is believed that the strain put upon the new propellers was too great. When the left propeller broke, the right one continued working and piloted the machine over. The accident happened in the twinkling of an eye, but in the infinitesimal space of time between the breaking of the propeller blade and the crash to earth, Mr Wright stopped his motor. Had he not done so, the accident would have been much more horrible, for undoubtedly an explosion would have instantly followed the smash. Lieutenant Selfridge died from his injuries at 10 minutes past eight this evening after an operation for a fractured skull. 
I just really like that account. It's so vivid and it really takes you there to that field and to making you realise how, how inconceivably dangerous it is to to try flying a machine that you you don't know anything about the science of flight and you don't know what's going to happen if you make your propeller a little bit longer and um, the, the huge dangers of, of and bravery of all of those people involved in pioneering air flight. Gosh, we started with lion taming and I want to end with black bear attacks. And there's a brilliant article that I came across by a scholar called Stephen Herrero uh, a title of the article is Fatal Attacks by American Black Bears on People, 1900 to 2009. And he, this article tells of at least 63 people killed in 59 incidents by non-captive black bears during this period. So this is black bear, fatal attacks in Canada and Alaska. And I just want to read uh, one of these attacks uh, on the 7th of August, 2009. Uh, this is in Colorado. Uh, a 74-year-old woman called Donna Munson had apparently been feeding bears for a decade and was repeatedly warned about this by wildlife officials. Now, after a bear had been injured in a fight with an older and bigger bear, Munson felt sorry for this uh, injured bear and left food out. And the older bear came back to Munson's property, forced its way past a wire fence, mauled her, and later wildlife officials killed two bears on her property. They open up one of the bears to reveal evidence that, in fact, it had consumed the 74-year-old. So there we are, Sam, the danger of bear attacks Amazing. in the oh. 20th century. A hugely enjoyable episode on the history of dangers leads to all sorts of other things we should do, James. Um, bears, possibly. But next week we have contempt and reading. I know. Um, so two wonderful ones, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, do please follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. You can also find us on Instagram and on Facebook and on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And also, if you have anything that you can do to support us, we also have a Patreon page. Absolutely. We'd be grateful for anything you could offer because it will help us um, produce more episodes and do more to change the way that people think about the past. That's some challenge. But we will not ever give up. Thank you all so much for listening. See you soon. Bye, guys.